Well, back in Genesis 37, we started the life story of Joseph. And then last week in Genesis 38, we left Joseph's story to focus on the tragic tale of Judah, one of Joseph's brothers, and his dealings with his daughter-in-law named Tamar. This week in Genesis 39, we get back to the story of Joseph. And if you weren't with us for chapter 37, here's the story so far. Joseph was the first child born to Jacob and Rachel. Jacob had other wives who bore him other sons, but Rachel was his favorite wife. And so when Joseph finally arrived, he was immediately Jacob's favorite son. And to make matters worse, Joseph was a genuinely wonderful man. Have you ever encountered someone who's just successful and everything they touch seems to turn to gold and the worst thing about them is that they're genuinely wonderful people? Isn't that the absolute worst where you want to dislike them but you understand you have absolutely no reason to at all because they're great people and you're like, no wonder God is blessing them. That was what Joseph was like. He was trustworthy, he was hardworking, He was honest to a fault. He was the only son that his father fully trusted, and so his father made him manager over the family business and their herds of sheep, and that included, as a natural process, him being in authority over his brothers and having a higher position of them, which made them hate Joseph, hate Joseph. And then Joseph was given two dreams by God, both of which spoke of his brothers bowing down to him with his mother and father joining them in the second dream. And Joseph shared these dreams with his family, which as we read, made his brothers hate him even more. Shortly after that, Joseph was sent on an assignment by his father. He was sent to check on his brothers who were taking care of the family sheep several days' journey away. And when his brothers saw him approaching in the distance, they began to plot his murder. They just had enough of him. However, Judah came up with the idea of instead selling him into slavery so that he and the other brothers could at least make a quick buck off Joseph's demise. So when some Ishmaelite traders came by, they sold Joseph to them and off he went to Egypt. Hated by his brothers, taken from his family, transformed from a a favorite son into a slave and all at the young age of 17. It's a lot to go through, obviously. And if you missed that study on Genesis 37, let me encourage you to listen to it online or watch it online because we talk about all the similarities between Joseph and Jesus because the incredible thing is that Joseph's life in an amazing number of ways points ahead prophetically to the life, ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It's quite a story. And we pick it up again in Genesis 39, verse 1. It says, now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. If you're a student of the Bible, you know that Egypt is always a picture of the world, the the world system that is run by Satan. And so because of that, whenever the Bible speaks of going to Egypt, you're always going down to Egypt. Even if you're traveling north, you're going down to Egypt. Just as the city of Jerusalem points to the city of God that is in heaven, Zion, Just as in the same way Jerusalem is where you go up to in the Bible, whether you're coming from the south or the north, you go up to Jerusalem. So Joseph goes down to Egypt and we read, Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard, an Egyptian, 
bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. So this man, Potiphar, sees something in this 17-year-old kid that says, you know, he'd be good to have around the house. He looks like he would be useful, and he buys him. Verse 2, then underline this, the Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph. Now, I just want to make sure that we're not just with our head in the clouds, we're not foggy, that we're actually paying attention here. Because if you follow Joseph's life story so far, and you're being honest, your reaction should be more along the lines of, the Lord was with Joseph? The Lord was with Joseph? The guy's just been betrayed by all his brothers, almost killed, sold as a slave, taken down to Egypt, but the Lord was with Joseph. Really? Are you kidding me? If God was with Joseph, he wouldn't be in Egypt, would he? And when we get to the end of the text today, we're going to discuss this more. But for now, as we head into this study, I just want to ask you to have this question rattling around your heart, mind, and soul. Here's the question. Do you believe, do you, do you personally believe that if God is truly with you, then things beyond your control can still go horribly wrong? Or do you believe that if things beyond your control in your life go horribly wrong, then it's clear evidence that God is not with you? What do you actually believe? How do you react when that happens in your life? When things beyond your control go sideways? Do you assume that God is not with you? Is it evidence that he's not with you? If you were Joseph in this situation, reading your life story as it unfolded, and you read the line, the Lord was with Joseph, what would your reaction be? Would you laugh mockingly? Would you find peace in reading that? We'll come back to that at the end and talk about it more. And then we read, and he was a successful, underlined successful man. Successful? He's a slave. Somebody else owns him. He owns practically nothing. But Joseph was a master of being content where the Lord placed him. He was able to accept that his situation had changed and he gave himself wholeheartedly to the task of being faithful in that place, in that place. Again, how do you do, how do I do when our situation changes seemingly for the worse? How long do we mope? How long do we sulk? How long are we bitter and angry? How long is it before we change our attitude and give ourselves wholeheartedly to being faithful where we're at in that moment? Do we ever get to that place or do we just stay bitter and disappointed? The Bible says it's on your outlines, now godliness with contentment is great gain. Great gain, that is a great verse. Godliness with contentment is great gain. You see, Joseph doesn't allow his life to become crippled with despair. He doesn't give subpar effort just because he's in a less than ideal situation. He focuses on being faithful to God where he's at and being content where he's at. And he begins to prosper. What does that mean? It means he begins to find, despite his circumstances, peace, joy, meaning, fulfillment. He begins to prosper in all these ways even though he's in slavery. Write this down. When I truly trust the Lord, I will be content and faithful wherever I find myself today. 
That's a heavy statement. When I truly trust the Lord, I will be content and faithful wherever I find myself today. Not I will be content and faithful in a week when things will hopefully be better, but where I am today. And then we read, and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. Just so you know, that was a favored position if you were a slave, to be a worker in a house. Because what was the alternative? Well, you could be building the pyramids. So it was a really good deal to be a slave who was in a house. Verse three, and his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord made all he did to prosper in his hand. In other words, to be a success. So Joseph found favor in his sight and served him. Then he made him overseer of his house, and all that he had he put under his authority. It doesn't happen overnight, probably over several years, but the idea is that as Potiphar just observes, as he watches Joseph going about his business and his job in his house, he finds that Joseph is someone who works diligently. He's someone who is trustworthy and someone who just does good work, whether people are watching or not, just as Joseph's father, Jacob, had found to be the case. And more importantly, Potiphar notices that God, the God whom he knows nothing about, is with Joseph. And he senses and sees this God's hand upon Joseph's life. Oh, that the same would be said of you and I. That those we work for would say, he's the best worker I have. She's the most trustworthy person in the office. They work hard whether I'm watching or not, whether I'm checking in or not, and they seem to be somehow just blessed. They just seem to be blessed. And here's what's so powerful about this. The way Joseph lived his life was helping to make an invisible God visible to Potiphar. And when you and I live and work with the same integrity, we make the invisible God visible to people by the way that we live and work. So write this down, very simple. The way we work should be a witness. The way we work should be a witness. And that doesn't mean you work yourself to death at the expense of your marriage and family. That's part of your witness too, but it means when you work, You give it everything you have. You do it with integrity. The Apostle Paul wrote, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Here's the key. Joseph understood that his real master was the Lord. His real master was the Lord. It wasn't Potiphar. Don't give subpar effort at the work God gives you in your home or at your place of work simply because you don't think your earthly master deserves better. Don't give subpar effort because you think your boss is a jerk, because you think your manager doesn't appreciate you adequately, because you think your spouse doesn't know everything that you do for them. Don't give subpar effort because your earthly master doesn't deserve better in your opinion. You don't work for them ultimately. You don't work for them. You work for the Lord. In Ephesians 6, Paul writes to bond servants. It was another form of slavery, and he gives some insights about how they should work for their bosses. I put it on your outlines. Read with me. It says, bond servants, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh. So in other words, those who are your earthly masters. With fear and trembling, in sincerity of heart, and then underline this, 
as to Christ, not with eye service. So in other words, don't just try and look like you're working. You know, like my kids do whenever I stick my head in the room, they're like, oh, this is doing something. They said, not like that, not just so that it looks like you're working hard as men pleasers, but as bond servants and then underline of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will doing service and then underline as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. And this is radical when Paul is writing this. He's saying to people that are essentially in a form of slavery, he's saying, hey, work like you're doing it for the Lord and the Lord will reward you. God will reward you the same way he will reward the free person who's doing their job. There's no partiality with God. The way we work should be a witness to the world around us. They should see something different in us. They should see a different motivation in us. The other lesson that's worth noting is this. You can make a note of this. Don't wait for a bigger platform before you start honoring the Lord with your work. Don't wait for a bigger platform before you start honoring the Lord with your work. In other words, don't think, you know, I'll give my best to the Lord, for the Lord, when I get a bigger, better opportunity. Then I'll, I'll really shift it into gear and it'll be time to work as unto the Lord. Don't say that because what did Jesus say? He said, he who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much. So God who made us, who knows how people are wired, how we work, God says, listen, here's what I can tell you about people as the creator of people. If you're not faithful with little things, you're not gonna be faithful with big things. So God is saying, I'm never gonna trust you with more if I can't trust you with a little bit first. So if we take the attitude of, you know, I'm just gonna shift it into neutral for a while. This is clearly not the season when I'm supposed to shine. So maybe this is just a rest season and then when the Lord gives me a bigger platform, a better opportunity, then I'll really give it all I have. That opportunity's never gonna come because God's waiting for us to be faithful where we are right now. He's looking for men and women who bring him honor by working as though they're doing it for him because they are right now, wherever you're at. We also need to remember that God is in us. We're his temple, according to the Bible. So this is the crazy concept. Where we go, God goes, because his spirit is in us. When we enter a place, God is there. So you do, do you view yourself when you work and when you socialize as taking God into every situation? Because you do. How often do we go into a situation and we say, oh, oh Lord, would you just be present in this meeting? Would you be present at work with me today? He, he is. It, it, it's nice to pray that, but you really don't need to. You can instead thank God that he is with you because he is with you. He promised he'd never leave you nor forsake you. He said your body's the temple of the Holy Spirit. The Apostle Paul said your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who's in you, whom you have from God. So write this down. The presence of a believer brings the presence of God wherever they go. The presence of a believer brings the presence of God wherever they go. He's already with you. And the real question is, how is knowing that God is with you, how is knowing that he is with you going to change the way you act and speak today? 
How's that going to be changed when you realize and remember and recognize that he is with you? He's already with you. And so Potiphar keeps giving Joseph these, these little promotions, more and more and more responsibility, until Joseph finally becomes head servant. And you might recall from our earlier studies that being head servant in a home was really kind of like being CEO. Your master would be the owner of the business, but if you were the head servant, you would be the one who ran everything for that person. And Joseph ran everything for Potiphar, took care of everything for him. Verse five, so it was from the time that he had made him overseer of his house and all that he had, that the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. And the blessing of the Lord was on all he had in the house and in the field. I, I don't know about you, but, but again, my reaction, if I were Joseph and I was reading this, probably would have been, hey God, you know, it's great that you're blessing Potiphar because of me, but um, how about you bless me for me? I mean, that would be great. That would be really nice. Like freedom, liberty, that would be great. But Potiphar is getting blessed because Joseph is in his house. Verse six, thus he, that's Potiphar, left all that he had in Joseph's hand. He left it in Joseph's care. And he did not know what he had except for the bread, except for the food which he ate. God blesses Joseph, Joseph works for Potiphar, so Potiphar gets blessed due to his proximity to Joseph. How close he is to Joseph, much like Jacob's uncle Laban, you may recall, was blessed because of his proximity to Jacob when Jacob was working for him. And it gets to the point where Potiphar trusts Joseph so much that when Joseph says to him, hey Potiphar, do you, do you want your weekly report on how your businesses and investments are doing? Potiphar just begins replying, you know Joseph, I, I trust you completely, I don't need updates. I'm just gonna trust that if there's an issue, you'll let me know about it. Otherwise, I'm just gonna assume you've got it handled and I'm just gonna enjoy my food. Thanks, buddy. And that's where things are at. Potiphar has no idea what's going on in his businesses and investments. He just knows they're being blessed because Joseph is over them and as long as Joseph is over them, everything is awesome. Then we read, now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. That's the biblical way of saying he had a chiseled body and a good looking face. Verse seven, and it came to pass after these things that his master's wife cast longing eyes on Joseph and she said, lie with me. So Joseph suddenly finds himself on an episode of Desperate Housewives of Cairo as Potiphar's wife notices that he's smart, handsome, and competent. And she says, you know, Joe, my husband's out of the house for most of the day. You're around here for most of the day and it wouldn't be hard for us to hook up. We got plenty of opportunities. So what do you say? Man, what a, what a tempting situation. What an easy opportunity for Joseph to say, hey, I'm, I'm a million miles from home. My brothers hate me. My mom and dad think I'm dead. God doesn't seem to be doing a, a whole lot for me lately. I mean, I'm here. I'm, I'm kind of entitled to enjoy a little bit of pleasure. How easy it would have been for him to justify to himself accepting her invitation. But Joseph had a fear of the Lord, a fear of the Lord that, that is based on an awareness of the thereness 
of God. He has this awareness of the thereness of God, that God is always there. And the wonderful thing about this kind of fear of the Lord is that it will protect you from making disastrous mistakes. Because a true fear of the Lord means that there will be situations in life where you would give in to temptation were it not for the fear of the Lord. It means there would be situations where you would not do the right thing, but you will do the right thing because you fear the Lord. It means that if you're in a situation where you really want to give in to temptation, you'll instead say, well, you know, I'd like to do that. It's what my heart wants right now, but I can't help remembering that the Word of God says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And I can't help remembering that Proverbs 14, 12 says, there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. And I remember 1 Corinthians six eighteen, which says, he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. I remember Proverbs 6, which says, whoever commits adultery with a woman lacks understanding. He who does so destroys his own soul. Wounds and dishonor he will get, and his reproach will not be taken away. I remember Numbers 32, 23, be sure your sin will find you out. I remember Galatians 6, 8, for he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. You see, a true fear of the Lord says, even though I want to do this, here's what I know. I know the Lord wasn't lying when he put all that stuff in the Bible. I know he wasn't bluffing when he put all that in his words. So, so no, I'm not going to do that. A real fear of the Lord is what, according to the Bible? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all those who do his commandments. It's the beginning of wisdom to fear the Lord. And the incredible thing about Joseph is he didn't even have the word of God yet. Yet he had a fear of the Lord. He just had some stories and promises that his dad had passed down to him. He just had a couple of dreams and this unshakable awareness that somehow God was with him. Even though I wouldn't have felt that way in his situation, he knew. He knew that God was with him. And he knew there were certain things God wanted him to do and other things that God did not want him to do. Which is why Joseph's character is so truly incredible. Verse 8 we read, But he refused, Joseph did, and said to his master's wife, Look, my master does not know what is with me in the house, and, and he's committed all that he has to my hand. So he's put me in charge of everything. There's no one greater in this house than I, nor has he kept back anything from me but you, because you're his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness? and sin against God. What a response. And I want you to notice especially what Joseph ends by saying. He says, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against Potiphar? No, that's not what he says. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? God, underline the word God. And this is so powerful. Why? Because if his thinking had been, how could I sin against Potiphar? the person, if you think that way, then you're deciding whether or not you're gonna sin based on how you feel about that person. What if that person is a giant jerk? A terrible spouse to their spouse. Then when you go, well, I couldn't possibly sin against, actually, you know, I kinda could. They're kind of a jerk. He doesn't do that, he says, I, I couldn't sin like that against 
God and how we need to hear this, how we need to be reminded of this, that when it comes to sin, the thing that we need to be most concerned about is that we're sinning against God. And we love to tell ourselves that some sins aren't as serious because they don't affect anybody else. We tell ourselves that. Or, or it's okay because the person we're sinning against kind of deserves it. But the truth is that, write this down, all sin is first and foremost sin against God. Because it's sin against God, that is what makes it sin. That's the definition of sin, is that it is against God. In Joseph's era, a fear of the Lord was the primary motivator to not sin. For us, it really should be love and gratitude. Because we know, we know on this side of the cross what our sin cost our Lord. We know the cost of sin. We know that the price was the body and blood and life of the Lord Jesus. And knowing what it cost Jesus to love us should motivate us to not sin. We should be motivated by love and gratitude. But if you're not, then be motivated by our fear of the Lord. Just don't sin. But Potiphar's wife, not about to give up that easy, verse 10. So it was as she spoke to Joseph day by day that he did not heed her to lie with her and then underline or to be with her, or to be with her. This poor guy, I mean, every day he goes to work and she's there offering herself to him, making his life miserable. And I really want you to note, because of that, the back part of verse 10, it says he, he wouldn't sleep with her, or I had you underline, be with her, be with her. As in at all. He wouldn't be with her at all. He didn't say, you know, I shouldn't have sex with her, but the Lord seems to have given me favor with her. So, so maybe I can witness to her and bring her into the family of God. He didn't say, you know, let's get coffee and discuss why you want to sleep with me. I mean, what's, what's really going on at the heart level with you? What's going on with you? Let's talk about that. See if I can help you. And, and he didn't play it cool and say, hey, hey, you know, let's just move on. Let's be friends. Let's just pretend this didn't happen. And he doesn't say, let's just be friends because he, he really wanted to keep the the ego-stroking benefit of having her around every now and then. He knew that it was her desire and hope to lure him into sexual sin, and so he didn't hang around with her at all, ever. And I feel I need to say something, something plainly at this point. You do not have the character of Joseph. I hope you know this. You do not have the character of Joseph. Neither do I. If you hold up his life, his integrity, and his character against my life or yours, he's beating all of us every time. Every time, okay? You do not have the character of Joseph. And if this is how directly Joseph deals with sexual temptation, don't we, at a minimum, at a minimum, need to do the same if we have any type of wisdom? If you were ever sexually involved with somebody other than your spouse, even if it was before you became a believer, you do not need to be friends with that person. You do not need to keep that connection going. You don't need to be friends with them on Facebook. 
You don't need to know what's going on in their life. You don't even need to keep that .001% chance that something could be rekindled. You don't need to do that. If you know that someone at your place of work is trying to pursue you sexually, you don't need to hang out with them at all. You don't need to worry about being salt and light to them. God will send somebody else. It's not you. God isn't like, hey, hey, I just want you to know. The fact that they want to have sex with you, yeah, that was my way of letting you know that I'm giving you favor with them. It's not how the Lord works. That's not what he's doing. You just need to get away. God will send someone else. And if you're thinking, well, that seems a little bit extreme, Jeff, then what you're really saying is, because I've got greater character and integrity than Joseph. I don't need to do that. I'm stronger than he is. You're not. And you won't do better than he did. If you struggle with porn and you don't have accountability software on your computer, you're going to mess up. If you struggle with porn but you're still paying for HBO, you're going to mess up. So write this down. The most effective way to resist sexual temptation is to avoid it altogether. It's just to avoid it altogether. That's the example Joseph gives. But man, Potiphar's wife, she's persistent. She's one thirsty woman. Verse 11. But it happened about this time when Joseph went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house was inside, probably not a coincidence, that she caught him by his garment. This would be his like outer coat saying, lie with me. And so yet again, yet again, ironically, here's Joseph wearing a coat that's easy to grab probably because it has big sleeves, which he has once again because he's an overseer, he's a manager, yet again. And once more, this coat is his downfall, is his downfall. I don't know what you do with that, but I just thought I'd point it out. And then we read, but he left his garment in her hand and fled and ran outside. I mean, he just doesn't move, he just straightens out those arms and whew, he's gone and she's just left holding the coat right there. He's taken off and this, this kid can move. Now listen, church, Joseph doesn't run because she's ugly. She was, she's not. Joseph doesn't run because he found her repulsive. He ran because he didn't. There's a huge lesson in that, and, and it's one we really need to hear in the church today. Write, write this down. The mature believer, the mature believer doesn't wrestle with temptation. He flees from it. The mature believer doesn't wrestle with temptation. He flees from it. It's not a sign of maturity to say, you know, I love to go into incredibly tempting situations and just wrestle with it because I believe I have the spiritual strength to do that. That's not wisdom. Spiritual maturity just stays away from it. And the obvious verse to share here is the one that you've heard. If you grew up in the church or you ever went to youth group, the Apostle Paul gives the famous instruction. It's on your outlines. Flee also youthful lusts, youthful lusts. And you know, a lot of the time as we grow into adulthood and we age, we start reading that verse and we think, you know what, that is good advice for those hormone crazy teenagers or those horny young adults who are on all those hooking up apps. But, but listen to me, listen to me. Does it say, if you're youthful, flee lusts? Is that what it says? It doesn't say that. It says, flee also 
youthful lusts. It's speaking about those lusts, those sexual drives and urges and desires that come to life in the days of your youth, in those teenage years. But if you haven't noticed, they don't ever go away. They don't ever go away. I always remember when we were teenagers, we would go and do ministry at Hawthorne Lodge. But one of the things you had to learn really quick is that just because dudes are really old doesn't mean they're not skeevy pervs, okay? There's no connection between getting older and becoming more sexually pure. No connection at all. You can be just as depraved at 90 as you can be at 19, okay? Except it's probably gonna be going on a lot more in the mind. And so it's speaking to these lusts that come to life in your youth. They might change in various ways, but they don't go away. Best example, how old was David when he got involved with Bathsheba? 50. He's 50. After everything God has done in his life, made him king, ruling over the greatest kingdom of Israel that's ever existed in history, he's 50. And he gets roped in, sees a naked woman from his balcony, has to have her, and essentially uses his position and power to force her to have sex with him. He's 50, 50. In fact, as we age, we should be growing in our faith and relationship with Jesus. And if there's one thing that genuine growth in your relationship with Jesus will teach you and show you is just how sinful you really are. Because the more clearly I see Jesus, the more clearly I see myself, and the more I notice the shocking difference between me and Jesus. The more I grow in my relationship with the Lord, the more shocked I am by my own sinfulness. I've shared this many times. Shocked by the things I still struggle with. Shocked by the thoughts I still have. Shocked by the attitudes I still find within myself. And the result is then that as we grow in Christian maturity, as we become more aware of our own sinfulness, we become more zealous and serious about fleeing from sin and avoiding it and taking steps to protect ourselves from it rather than going into situations that are unnecessarily dangerous. And when we flee sin, where are we to flee to? Well, Paul actually kept writing in that verse to young Pastor Timothy and he said, but pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart, with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. In other words, flee from those tempting situations and lusts and go get around other believers, those who call on the Lord. Get around people who are praying, get around people who are worshiping, get around people who are studying. Confess to someone who fits that description what you're struggling through, ask them to pray for you. God says there's power in that, there's freedom in that, there's deliverance in that, there's strength in that. As I was thinking about this, I was trying to think, man, what's a, what's a modern sort of example we could give of all this? And I've shared this before. Gosh, I'm saying that a lot in this message. But do you remember, you remember when Trump was running for president and it came out that his, um, his VP, Mike Pence, had a really strict set of personal rules about his interactions with women. I don't know if you guys remember this, but, but Mike Pence is a believer, even though if you watch 
Canadian media, you probably think he's the Antichrist. He's, he's not. He's a believer. And so he was already taking a huge amount of flack in the media for being pro-life and, and for lobbying for things like creationism being taught in schools al along with evolution. But the media went absolutely crazy with glee when it came out that he had a personal policy of not even eating a meal at a restaurant alone with another woman other than his wife. The media thought this was so archaic and hilarious. They just couldn't believe Mike Pence would see a connection between eating lunch and seemingly having an affair. Just couldn't get over this. And firstly, it shows a real ignorance about how affairs begin. A real ignorance. It's not that two people generally look at each other in the next second they're in the janitor's closet. That's not usually how it happens. Affairs usually begin with the connection and it's a billion times easier for that connection to spark when you're alone with that person, especially in intimate one-on-one -on -one conversation. So there's a real ignorance there about how affairs actually begin. And I'm not saying you need to have the same standard. It's a personal choice that Mike Pence made to completely avoid temptation. It's a standard he has to help him honor his wife, other women, and their husbands. And the media and much of the Western world thought it was absolutely comical, absolutely comical. But wouldn't you know it, just a couple of months later, after all that, it started coming out that the very same media that had mocked Mike Pence was itself infected with a horrific culture of sexual exploitation that thrived in one-on-one -on -one meetings. Women and sometimes men were being raped, molested, manipulated into sex, threatened into sex, and on and on it went, and it's still going on. There's still nearly weekly revelations, right, of people who were abusing their positions of power in the media industry, and it spawned the whole Me Too movement. And yet nobody, I haven't read this anywhere, nobody has said anything along the lines of, uh, maybe we owe Mike Pence an apology. You see, at least woman never had to worry about being exploited by him. At least his wife never had to worry what he was doing with his position of power. And here's my point. Living righteously, taking sin seriously, fleeing temptations, these things are never going to make sense to a world that doesn't love the Lord. They're never going to make sense. They're never going to be cool. They're always going to be ridiculed. But, but, they will lead to life and they will save you from destruction in your life and marriage and relationships. And here's what I know. I know Mike Pence is sleeping sound tonight because he doesn't have to wonder if any of the things that he's done behind closed doors are going to come to light and ruin his career. He doesn't have to worry about that. Joseph was in what would seem to be a no-win situation. It seemed to be that. I mean, I mean, he could either sin and sleep with his boss's wife, or he could decline, which would mean rejecting her, which would mean making an enemy of his boss's wife. Generally not a good career move. He's in a no-win situation, and, and he didn't do anything wrong. Didn't do anything wrong, and yet God was with him. And God was working because Joseph chose the win that was available. And it was the only win that truly mattered, honoring God. Joseph chose to do that. He chose to honor God. And in that 
we learn the lesson that sometimes there's not a win available that will let you keep your career, that will let you keep your relationships, that will keep people liking you. Sometimes the only win available is the most important one, honoring God. So write this down. The only win that truly matters is honoring God. Honoring God. For us as believers, that's how we define success. Did we honor God? Did we obey the Lord? Verse 13, and so it was, when she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and fled outside, that she called to the men of the house and spoke to them saying, see, he has brought into us a Hebrew to mock us. He came in to lie with me and I cried out with a loud voice. And it happened when he heard that I lifted my voice and cried out that he left his garment with me and fled and went outside. You see, doing the right thing doesn't always mean an immediate reward or else everybody would do the right thing. And Joseph's immediate reward for having integrity and character is being falsely accused of attempted rape. And this happens because hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. Potiphar's wife is angry with Joseph. And while I don't want to get too much into it, I just want to make another cultural observation here. And I want to point out that the Bible calls us to be sober-minded, to use good judgment. That means we're supposed to be level-headed, we're supposed to think clearly, we're not supposed to be impulsive, and it's especially important in today's culture where it means we're not supposed to rush to judgment on anything if we don't have all the facts. Don't miss the significance of the fact that the Bible records the case of a righteous man being falsely accused of rape. It's a pretty relevant current topic and again, going south of the border because their politics is way more entertaining than ours. I was astounded by the number of people who rushed to judgment when the latest American Supreme Court nominee, Brett Kavanaugh, was going through his nomination process. I don't know anything about him or his life, just what, what you read in the news, but it was shocking to watch because as soon as he got nominated and he was conservative, out of the blue, out of the blue, suddenly all these women show up with accusations of wrongdoing. 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. Never said a word about it till right now at this moment. And mainstream media latches onto this and you probably saw it everywhere. We saw it up here too in Canada. Like how can they possibly nominate this man after the way he's treated women, after all the things he's done to women that he's been accused of harassing, assaulting, even raping them. And I watched in amazement at the number of people, even believers, who said, man, this scumbag is unfit for the Supreme Court. Seemingly completely ignorant to the irony of a Supreme Court judge being rejected because of charges that are unproven, unsubstantiated, and never been tried in a court of law. I thought, I thought that was tragically hilarious. You should not let this man become a judge because of all these accusations. We don't need to go through due process. We don't need evidence. We don't need to investigate. Just assume the absolute worst about him and don't let him become a judge. The very thing that is the antithesis of what the legal system is supposed to be. And anyway, he, en he ends up getting appointed and then, I don't know if you've kept up with the story because the media dropped it because one by one, all the women who made accusations have turned out to be false. Last I counted, they were at five. The first five that they'd investigated turned out had never even met him in his life. 
and they admitted that they had just completely made up the accusations in an attempt to derail him because they didn't like his political stances. And so to be sober-minded means that we don't rush to judgment. It means we wait for evidence. We wait for the facts. Even though we live in a culture where what's most valued in our culture is having an immediate and emphatic and passionate opinion. That's more valued than having an informed opinion in our culture. So whether it's a political figure, whether it's a police shooting, whether it's a story that you hear about, an article that someone forwards to you online, be sober-minded in everything. When you hear a rumor, be sober-minded. Do your research. It, it pains me when I see Christians use social media to pass on information that they haven't verified, that I know for sure is false. And the reason it pains me is because it sends the message to the world that we're chumps who will fall for anything. And it doesn't give any credibility to the gospel that we place our hope and faith in. Because people look at us and say, well yeah, you, you believe that? Look at what you posted online. Why would I ever ask you about what your spiritual beliefs are? You'll apparently fall for anything. You believe that Walmart's handing out free $500 gift cards. Are you out of your mind? Seriously, if I see any of you do that, man, I'll love you, but uh, there'll have to be some correction going on, okay? This is like the old thing of if it sounds too good to be true, that, that didn't go away just because technology got better. It's still true, right? Nobody is giving away free campers on Facebook, okay? You just, you just need to know that that's not happening, okay? Let your speech be credible. Let your speech be truthful. Be sober-minded. Don't get carried away in, in your emotions just because you hear something. Be sober-minded. It would have been great if people had been sober-minded about what happened to Joseph, but he, a righteous man, is a victim of people not being sober-minded and people rushing to judgment. A man falsely accused. Verse 16. So she kept his garment with her until his master came home. Then she spoke to him with words like these, speaking to Potiphar, her husband, saying, the Hebrew servant whom you brought to us came in to me to mock me. That's just their way of saying to rape me. So it happened as I lifted up my voice and cried out that he left his garment with me and fled outside. So it was when his master heard the words which his wife spoke to him, saying, your servant did this to me after this manner, that his anger was aroused. Then Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, a place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in the prison. Now I would suggest to you that Potiphar's anger wasn't necessarily aroused against Joseph. Because in Egypt at that time, attempted rape was a capital offense. You'd be put to death for it. Potiphar is the captain of the king's guard. He is the captainer of the executioners in Egypt. Potiphar could have just snapped his fingers and had Joseph executed, easily. And if he had believed that Joseph actually tried to do this to his wife, I'm 100% confident he would have just had Joseph killed, but he doesn't. He has him thrown in prison. My guess is that Potiphar actually knew his wife pretty well, and he didn't actually believe her. And his anger was kindled against her because he recognized that she had probably tried to cheat on him, but she had now forced his hand where he had to take action or he would be publicly embarrassed in society. But he's also upset because his wife has now cost him his 
best, most profitable, anointed employee who is making their lives prosper. Nevertheless, he opts to not be publicly embarrassed and he has Joseph thrown in prison. Joseph honors God, he honors his boss Potiphar, he shows self-control and righteousness and he, he reaps the reward of losing everything and being thrown in prison. His reputation and influence, which have been built up over several years, where he must have maybe been thinking, hey, listen, I can see the Lord is at work. I'm growing in influence. I'm growing in reputation. God's using me more and more. Gone. Gone. Aren't you, Joseph, the guy who tried to rape uh, Potiphar's wife? Reputation, gone. Influence, gone. And to add insult to injury, we read yet again in verse 21, But the Lord was with Joseph, and you can underline that, and showed him mercy. And again, if this was me, I'd be thinking, with, how? How was he with Joseph? Most of us would have probably begun saying, you know what, Lord? Please don't be with me. Stop being with me. Hey, you know what? Why don't you go be with my brothers? That would be great. How about you go be with them? Because I need a break from you being with me because you being with me is literally ruining my life. Then we read, and he gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison committed to Joseph's hand all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever they did there, it was his doing. The keeper of the prison did not look into anything that was under Joseph's authority because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it prosper. Whatever he did in prison, the Lord made it prosper in prison. And yet again, Joseph rises to this favored position, but he's in prison. While I asked the question earlier in the message, do you believe that if God is truly with you, things beyond your control can still go horribly wrong in your life? Or do you believe that if things beyond your control go sideways in your life, then it's evidence that God's not with you? As we walk with the Lord, the promise is given to us that, that we're being sanctified. We're being made more like Jesus. That's the work that God is doing in you and I right now. And he cares more about that work than anything else because he knows that the more we become like Jesus in this life, the more we will be rewarded in the next life. And the next life, by the way, goes on for eternity with him. In other words, you and I becoming like Jesus is the best thing for us because it will benefit us for eternity. Even though we so easily believe that whatever makes us comfortable here and now is the best thing for us, this life is going to be over like that. And so becoming like Jesus is the work that God considers most important in this life for you and I. The good news is that God can and will use any and every circumstance in our lives to grow us and make us more like Jesus. Even when we totally mess it up, God will use it to do something in us to make us more like Jesus. The bad news is that it's not only good and easy and comfortable circumstances that make us more like Jesus. In fact, the opposite is generally true. It's the difficult circumstances that shape us, challenge us, grow us, and stretch our faith that make us more like Jesus in an effective way. And while it's true that we're intended to go spiritually from faith to faith, becoming more and more and more like Jesus, growing upward, it's not true that the journey of life is supposed to become smoother along the way. 
It's not true that the bumps get leveled out as you grow in the Lord and situations get easier. What does happen, however, is that as you and I become more like Jesus, as we grow, those difficult circumstances don't affect us the way that they used to. As we learn how to lean into the Lord, to trust the Lord, to draw on his strength, we actually handle those situations better because we run to the Lord more quickly. Perhaps some of you have seen this illustration. It's got two drawings on it, and, and, and the first drawing is titled, My Plan for My Life, and it's got sort of birth and heaven. It's just a straight line up from birth to heaven like that. And then the other drawing says, says God's plan for my life, and it's got birth and heaven, and its pen sort of starts on birth, and then it just looks like a two-year-old druid, and it's just a squiggly mess of lines that somehow ends up in heaven. And that's God's plan for your life. That's what it looks like. And I like that. I like that because it's true. We, we want and we sometimes expect that our spiritual growth and life circumstances are going to be connected. The more like Jesus I become, the better my life circumstances will be and my situation will be. As I level up with God, I will level up in life with a new promotion, greater income, a, a better house, stuff like that. Well, for the first 17 years of Joseph's life, it seemed like everything was on track. He was just up and up. He was the favored son, the son with all the potential. He had quickly risen through the ranks to the position of managing the family's flocks, and he was just going to continue to prosper and be given more responsibility till he ultimately took over everything in the family. It was a story that made sense when people said, God wants to prosper you. God wants to bless you. God is with you. Joseph could look at his life and say, you know, it makes sense when I look at my life. But then it turns out that all his brothers hate him for being honest and trustworthy. Turns out they were ready to kill him before they finally sell him as a slave instead. They looked him in the eyes and handed him over to be taken as a slave to Egypt. And there Joseph finds himself standing in a market, probably around Cairo, in chains being sold as a slave. That's not a story that seems to make sense when someone says, God wants to prosper you. God wants to bless you. God is with you. But Joseph stays faithful. He pours his absolute best into working well for his master Potiphar and the Lord blessed Joseph. Everything he does prospers. He rises in influence and power, becomes manager over everything in Potiphar's house. He's trusted implicitly. Then he's falsely accused of rape and thrown in prison. And it's all gone in an instant. Yet again, not a story that makes sense when people said, God wants to prosper you. God wants to bless you. God is with you, Joseph. But Joseph stays faithful. He pours his absolute best into being the best prisoner he can be and serving the warden of that prison. As a result, he gains the trust of the warden and is soon overseeing all the other prisoners. But even that, that's not a story that makes sense when people say, God wants to prosper you. God wants to bless you. Joseph, God is with you. Because most of us would think, if God's blessing me, then I don't have a relationship with the prison warden. Because if God's blessing me, I'm not in prison. That's my assumption. But let me ask you, did God desire to bless Joseph? Absolutely. Absolutely. Was God with Joseph? 
Absolutely. The greatest blessing God could give Joseph, the greatest blessing, think about this, that God could give Joseph, was a journey that made him as much like Jesus as he could possibly become in this life. That's the greatest way that God could bless Joseph, with a life journey that made him as much like Jesus as he could possibly become in this life. And the same is true for you and me. Joseph was being blessed when he was sold as a slave. He was being blessed when he was thrown in prison. God was with him. God was prospering him. How? For eternity. He was prospering him for eternity. Write this down. God's plan for our lives is to make us more like Jesus. More like Jesus. And you don't become more like Jesus through a life that happens in a straight line, smooth and easy. We become more like Jesus through a life journey that for most of us looks like squiggly lines on a page. Up and down, up, down, down again, up, up, down, 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 up, up, down, 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 over and over again. God does want to prosper you. God does want to bless you. And God is with you. He's with you. And when you look at Joseph's story more closely, what do you see? You see, oh, wow, Joseph didn't die that day when he visited his brothers. He was sold as a slave instead. Oh, he could have ended up as a manual laborer as a slave, but instead he ended up in the house of one of the most important men in Egypt. As he worked faithfully, God blessed everything he did and helped him succeed in his work. God gave Joseph favor with his boss. Joseph rose to oversee all that Potiphar had. Hey, he was thrown in prison instead of being executed. Joseph gained favor with the warden. He became overseer over all the prisoners. God's hand was all over Joseph's life. And I wonder if Joseph could see it at the time. No matter what you're going through, God's hand is all over your life. It's all over your life. Can you see it? If you can't, you will. You will. The day will come when you will. Believe that. God does want to prosper you. He does want to bless you. And he is with you. Be faithful where the Lord has placed you today. Trust in the goodness of the Lord today. And, and recognize that just because the trajectory of your life is in a straight line, it doesn't mean that God's not with you. It doesn't mean his plan has been abandoned or derailed. Trust him, trust him, and then trust him some more. He's good. He's always good. Always. And then lastly, I'm going to say this. When it comes to sin, especially sexual sin, do you, do you want to be a Judah that we read about last week or do you want to be a Joseph? That's the choice, really. Are you going to be someone who's going to hang around in the place of temptation or are you going to be someone who's going to live free from temptation? Jesus came to give us life and life abundantly through his spirit. He gave us the power to flee from sin. To have the wisdom, the mind of Christ to avoid those situations. And we can with the help of Jesus and his spirit. We need his help. We need his help. Let's pray. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Father, this evening we do... Um, Lord, we do ask for your help. Just as we live in a, a culture 
Lord, we want to pretend that our culture is somehow more obsessed with sexual sin than others, but it's been like that since forever, Lord. Uh, We're so easily ensnared as people by sexual sin. And so, Lord, uh, we need your help, and our kids need your help, and our families need your help, God, and our church needs your help. So, Father, I pray that you would give us wisdom, wisdom to flee temptation, to avoid it completely, to not buy into the lie of Satan that strokes our ego and plays on our pride and tells us that we can somehow take fire into our lap and not be burned. Lord, give us the wisdom to recognize our own sinfulness and instead live and enjoy the freedom from sexual sin that you offer us, the freedom of not walking around carrying guilt and shame. Give us that freedom. Give us that freedom, Lord. And then, Father, we also pray that your spirit would encourage each of us, Lord. I pray for every person in the room right now who is wrestling with discouragement. God, I pray that you would affirm through your Holy Spirit what we know to be true mentally, but Lord, may it sink down into our souls and into our hearts this evening. The true reality that you love us, you want to prosper us, you want to bless us, you are with us, God. You are at work in our lives right now. Whether our life looks like what we thought it would or not, you're at work, Lord God. Thank you that you're doing something good. You're making us more like Jesus. Father, help us to never look at that process in our lives and fail to recognize how important it is and what a blessing it is. When you're doing that in our lives, may we never look at our lives and say, God's not doing anything right now, or nothing seems to be happening when we are being shaped to be made like your son, Jesus. Thank you that you're doing that, Lord. Every work that you're doing in every one of our lives, Lord, may we surrender to it, may we welcome it, may we receive it, and may we respond to it in obedience and humility, God. I pray right now for each of us as we get ready to worship and take communion and spend some focused time with you, Lord, would you just reveal to us what it is you want to do in our lives, Lord, that we could be on board with it, that we could be in agreement with you as you work it out in our lives. Lord, we just invite you to do that and to speak to us. Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says, The Gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. 
If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.